0: Sharing good news of great joy to all people. Elation Church. And here's something that we can learn from the Old Testament stories. We can learn that when we honor God as King, we can live under the umbrella of who He is, of His blessing. Everybody say blessing. blessing. Of His provision. Everybody say provision. provision. And protection. Everybody say protection. protection you might say, well, Dean, this sounds good and it preaches good, but how do you know that God wants to bless me? How do you know that God's not mad at me? I mean, I've heard a lot of preaching in my day about how rough God can get, and he's out to get you and smack you down and beat you up. I don't know if you've ever heard any of that preaching or not. If you haven't. You don't have to unlearn a lot of the things that a lot of us have had to unlearn, right? You might say, well, Deed, what, Deed, how do you know God wants to bless me and provide for me and protect me? Well, just look at the person beside you and say, because that's who God is. That's who he is. It's, it's all clear when we take old religious blinders off and look straight at the Word of God, it becomes clear, right? Because God is El Shaddai. I mean, He told us these names. These names are in the Bible, all right? He is El Shaddai. Everybody say El El Shaddai. So that means that He is the Almighty God. That's the El part. And Shaddai means that He is able... To completely nourish you, to completely satisfy you, and to completely supply you. Somebody say that's who God is. He's also Yahweh Jireh. Have you heard that one? That means that he is your provider. He's also Yahweh Ra. That means he's your good shepherd. Everybody say good shepherd. I mean, he's a good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do for his sheep? Does he beat them up and beat them down? No, he protects them, right? He cares for them. He takes them to places of provision. That's who God is. He is Yahweh Nisi. He is our banner of identity and victory. That's who he is. Now, I could keep going, all right, because there's a lot more. But I just wanted you to know that God's a good God, and that's who he is, and that's what he wants to do for you. And if we will acknowledge him as our king, and if we will acknowledge him as our Lord, and if we will, by faith, take hold of who he is, then we can live under His umbrella of provision and blessing and protection. There's even more than that. That's just what we're focusing on. Now, who's going to help me? You're going to help me or am I going to make Ethan help me today? Let Ethan help me today. You helped me last week. Just giving you a picture. Okay, so you're not really God, but you're playing God's part. And God would hold the umbrella where it wouldn't hit my head. There you go. (laughs) So here's the deal. So if I acknowledge God and I honor God and I realize who he is and who he wants to be for me, you know what, I'm going to be right here. I'm going to say, you are my king and you're a good shepherd, and you're El Shaddai, you're able to completely nourish me and supply me and satisfy me, and you're my banner of victory. So as long as I'm with you, we win. We win. You're my provider. So I'm going to stay right here where that is. Hello? Doesn't that make sense? We're going to stay tight with God, and when we stay tight with God, we are under that umbrella. But why is it, as we look at the stories in the book of Judges, like we're going to be looking at the different times, why is it that people turn away from God? And we can get get all judgmental on them, but listen, why is it that you and me often turn away from God and start turning to other things? For our protection and our provision. Why why is it that we do that? But this is God. Jesus told us a parable about the Good Samaritan. Not the Good Samaritan. He did tell us that one. He told us a parable about the prodigal son, is the one I'm looking for. The good Samaritan's still good too, but in that parable of the prodigal son, we always focus on the Son. I believe Jesus was trying to tell us who the Father is, and if you're remembering that story, the Father would go out to the edge of the property every day, and he would look at the horizon to see if today's the day that his son was going to come back. Look to the person beside you and tell him, "That's God. That's God." When God's people move away from Him, it's not like it's not like God has changed, and God don't want to bless them and provide them provide for them. It's not like that. It's like, I walked away. I walked away. And God is still standing there, wanting me to come back. He's waiting on me to come back. He's wanting me to come back. The Bible told us last week that as God's people stepped away from him, that it grieved God. It grieved God. It grieved Him. So, God's always waiting. And you know what? Every one of us, even if we move away from Him and acknowledging Him as King of our lives and Lord of our lives, He's waiting for us to come back. Lift it up a little bit. And <laughs> and when we come back, then we can experience who He is. Are you with me? Thank you, sir. So, let's continue in our study. The Bible's filled with stories of success and failure. Can anybody look at the Old Testament and see some failures? But you can also see some successes. Here's the deal. A wise person learns from the mistakes... And failures of others instead of learning everything the hard way. Is there anybody in the room who's learned some things the hard way before? You know, it'd be a whole lot easier to learn from someone else's mistakes and avoid those traps and those pitfalls in life. The book of Judges is a historical account of God's people and generation after generation, God's people would turn away from God. They would get out from under his umbrella and then they would come to their senses and turn back to God. And when they turned back to God, God always rose up a deliverer, a judge. It's not a judge with a robe on who's sitting in court with a gavel. It's really a military leader or a deliverer. So when you hear the word judge, don't think, here comes a judge, all right? It's not, it's not that. And like we looked at last week, During the days of the judges, the time of the judges, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's the way they lived their lives. And Proverbs tells us, there's a way that seems right, but the end is death and destruction. If we live by what feels good, like this world tells us, oh just go by what feels good and do it, you know. No, there's a right way and a wrong way. Everybody say a right way. right way. And God gives us a path in the right way. Right? So they live by whatever seemed right. They did not acknowledge God as king. God wanted to be their king. But over and over again they rejected. And we looked at last week, if you if you want to look into this, go to last week's service on Facebook, but we looked at, well, God told them to do this, and if they did this, if they drove the people out, then God would empower them to drive the people out. But no, they didn't do it. They failed, they failed, they failed, they failed. We looked at every tribe that failed to do what God told them to do. And so that brought trouble. And it actually brings the trouble all the way through the book of Judges, the trouble that God said it was going to bring if they didn't obey. So did the people have a right to say God's bad now? Hello? God's not a good God because he's not doing these things for us? Well, it was if-then promises. And the Bible has some if-then promises. If we do our part, then God's going to do his part right? Yep. Hello? Come on. Right. But they didn't fulfill their part of the deal. And they just lived by whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So today we're picking up in Judges chapter three, verses 12 through 19. And it repeats again. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's son. What does that mean? They Turned away from God. They began to worship the bells and those gods of the imaginations of the people that they were supposed to drive out, their kids intermarried with people who didn't live for God, you know, and then they they wound up having idols and a share of poles and all those kind of things, and, and they began to worship other gods. They did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel, Because of their evil. So they stepped out from under. The umbrella of protection. Doing evil. Not obeying God. Not worshipping God. Living for God. Loving God. And then now. They're handed over. It's like. God's standing here with the umbrella. And he said. I want you to acknowledge me. And I want you to worship me. And I want you to serve me. But if you don't want to. See how that works out for you. So. King Eglon, at least it wasn't that guy's name that I couldn't remember last week that meant doubly dark and wicked. I mean, I I can't even, I couldn't even say it when it was written in front of me. I tried really hard. When God's people stop honoring him as king, turn away from him to do evil, they step out from under his umbrella of blessings, provision, and protection. Verse 13, Eglon enlisted the Amorites and the Amalekites as allies. So you got the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. And then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Everybody say 18 years. So the Moabites and the Ammonites, are descendants of Lot. Do you remember Lot? Abraham and Lot. Right? So Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? So the Moabites and Ammonites were descendants of Lot. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau. The one who didn't think that his blessing was worth anything, so he sold it for a bowl of soup. Gave it up. Right? So, I want to bring this out. So if they're descendants of Lot and descendants of Esau, then we find out that their past came back to haunt them. That wasn't their immediate past, but it was the past of their forefathers. It came back to haunt them. And I want us to pause right here and think about that. Is there, is there something from your past that comes back to haunt you every once in a while? Does anybody deal with those things? Might be a feeling, it might be a temptation. Something from our past comes back to haunt us. Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews 12 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially. The sin that so easily trips us up. Now, you may be sitting here and you might think, I'm the only one who deals with this. I'm the only one who has a certain area of sin in my life that comes back to haunt me and tries to trip me up. I'm the only one that deals with that. Now, let me me free you up a little bit. It's not the same for everybody in the room but I believe all of us experience this. Sometimes we think we're the only one and we're, we're like, God, how how can I be the preacher and keep being tempted by this thing from my past? Well, you wouldn't say the preacher, obviously. But... And you think, God can never use me because I keep dealing with the same struggle. I keep dealing with the same feeling. I keep dealing with the same temptation that, It keeps looping back around. The Bible says to cast it off, especially those sins that tribute. Here's one way that we can cast it off. We can choose to not put ourselves in the same area that would bring that same temptation. I think I've shared this story with you before, but it's been a long time. And I want to hear it again. Who likes Krispy Kreme donuts? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like Krispy Kreme donuts. I want you to get a picture in your mind of casting something off. All right? Casting off every weight that slows you down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Well, I'm not telling you that Krispy Kreme donuts are a sin. Okay? But we're going to look at that as a temptation. Would you say that they could be a temptation every once in a while? Okay? So, there's this person who is like, You know, they feel convicted about eating too many Krispy Kreme donuts. And they want to do better. You know, it's part of their New Year's resolution. Want to do better. I don't want to eat so many Krispy Kreme donuts. I know it's bad for my health if I eat too many. Okay? So, they've got this deal and they pray to God. God, help me. Help me stand against this temptation of Krispy Kreme donuts. So then when they get off work one day, they come to this agreement with God and they say, well, God, I know you're gonna help me because I ask you to help me. So here's the deal. When I drive past Krispy Kreme donuts on my way home from work today, if the hot now sign is not on, I know that you are helping me and I will not stop. As long as the hot now sign is not on. I'm not going to stop and buy some donuts. Well, when they drove by, it wasn't on. But by the eighth time that they looped around the block, (laughs) it was on. Okay. So, if there's a temptation that catches us. Often. The Bible tells us to cast it off, to strip it off every weight. You know, don't even drive by, if that's your temptation, don't even drive by Krispy Kreme the first time. Find a different way home. But my goodness, don't drive around eight times waiting for the hot now sign to come on. You know, you're setting yourself up for failure, right? You set yourself up for failure. And remember, we're not just talking about Christmas, (laughs) Krispy Kreme. That was close to Christmas. Krispy Kreme donuts. We're not just talking about Krispy Kreme donuts. If there's some kind of negative feeling that always trips you up, well, if there's something that triggers that, you know what I'm talking about? It's most likely common things that trigger that feeling. Stay away from those triggers, you know. Um, Don't expose, don't intentionally expose yourself to what's going to trigger that negative emotion or that feeling or that temptation. Because our past comes back to haunt all of us. You're not alone. See, when you think you're the only one and you're messed up, then you start beating yourself up even more. I have. Okay? The verse goes on. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. How do we do it? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, our King, our Lord. We keep our eyes on Him, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Somebody should have said amen right there. All right, let's go back to Judges chapter 3. For 18 years, they were under the rule of Egon. Look, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer, a judge to save them. Again, for 18 years, God had been there, and he had been watching, and he had been wanting And he had been seeing if his people were going to come to their senses and turn back to him. He was patiently waiting. Mercifully waiting. When they cried out to him, when they turned to him, he raised up a judge, a rescuer. When we turn away from God, he doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. That's what the Bible says. He's a loving father who's always looking for us to return to him. And here's the deliverer, the judge. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man. That came out of the blue, didn't it? His name was Ehud. Do so we have any left-handed people in the room? This is the left-handed judge, just remark Mark today. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man, of the tribe of Benjamin. Left handed. Our English Bible translates Ehud, was left handed. But when you look at the original language, when you look at the Hebrew that the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament was written in, you find that it's a compound word. It's, it's a couple of words put together. And here's what it means it means his right hand was closed up. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he's just left-handed. Like he picked up the he picked up his cup with his left hand or picked up the pencil with his left hand. Does anybody have some old school horror stories about left-handed people? Old school, really? How old are you? Ten? Got some old school horror stories? You know, I've got friends who say that every time they picked up a pencil with their left hand, a teacher would take a ruler. And smash their hand with a ruler, and force them to use their right hand, even though they were left-handed. Now, in today's world, the teacher would be in trouble, in bad trouble for doing something like that. But back when I was young, man, anybody have a shop teacher or coach that had a paddle with holes drilled all in it? That's that's what I'm talking about, old school, right there. That's what I'm talking about. Anyway. So it wasn't necessarily that Ehud just picked up the pencil with his left hand or his cup with his left hand. It says his right hand was closed up. He was powerless. He was impeded. He was handicapped. Now, each one of these judges that we're going to look at, we're going to find out that if we were voting and there was people in the room and we were voting, who's going to be the military leader to deliver us? I mean, last week, Othniel was 75 years old. I mean, he could have said, God, I don't want to be the front runner in this battle going up against these trained soldiers. You know, let one of these young bucks go out there. I'm going to move to Florida. <laughs> I mean, I've done my share. Don't you know I'm retired? I mean, I'm 75 years old. But just like that, D-Hood could have said, you want me to be the military leader to rescue the whole nation? I can't even use my right hand. Maybe he got hurt a long time ago. Maybe he was born that way. Who knows? But, I mean, he couldn't even open up his right hand. He couldn't function with his right hand. All he had was one hand. I mean, are we going to pick out the person who's handicapped to charge the battlefield and to lead us? God did. Look to the person beside you and say, God did. God did. He could have made all kinds of excuses on why he was not the person for the job. Some of you probably get tired of me saying this, but I mean, I felt like I wasn't the right person to be to be a preacher. No, some of you hadn't heard this. Some of you have. I mean, I didn't mind singing. Gannon and I met singing at college, and that was my full scholarship. That was my full ride to pay for my college. We would go out and sing in churches on weekends together, but preaching. I dropped out of my speech class in college I mean, I was in the class I wrote the speech the teacher had graded the speech and now it was time for us to stand up in front of the class and present our speeches so I went to the registrar's office and I said when's the last day I can drop this class where it won't show up that I ever even took it and that was the day so I said <laughs> I'm dropping because I'm not going to stand in front of 30 people and talk for eight minutes. And those, those of you who know me best would say, I wish you would talk less than you talk now. But anyway, I mean, this is God. I mean, almost every week for me to stand up and teach and preach, I mean, it's it's God doing it. I'm not the person. There are people with more charisma and big radio voices and all this kind of stuff. I mean, God, can't you find somebody better than me? Here's the deal. God wants to use you for his kingdom in this generation he wants to use every single one of you from the youngest to the oldest for his kingdom and for his glory every single one of you not just the preacher every single one of you and I don't care what excuse you come up with to tell God that something has disqualified you in your past or or whatever hey God even used a donkey in the Bible to talk, to speak. If he can use a donkey, I guess he can use me. And he wants to use you. He wants to use you. God doesn't always select the people we would select to do great things for him and his kingdom. We look at the outside, we look at the natural talents, we look at the natural abilities, but God looks at you and sees who you can be. And every single one of you, God wants to put his super on your natural. And even if your natural isn't much, his super is more than enough. Whoo, I'm preaching good. All right. Let's go back to the story. The Israelites sent handicapped Behood, his right hand was closed up, to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. That's what happens when you're under the rule of another king and you're having to serve somebody. It's like you've got, you got to pay your taxes. Everybody say taxes. you got to pay your tribute. Whatever he wants, you better give it to him or he's going to send his soldiers to collect what you owe him plus more. So Israelite said, Ehud, We want you to deliver our tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger. That's a very small sword or a very large knife, however you want to put it. Double-edged dagger that was about a foot long. And he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was... Very fat. Bet you if you're not familiar with this story, you might say, The Bible calls somebody fat? There it is. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. After he delivered the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. I mean, he was wanting more than one handicapped man could carry in his left hand, so it took it took an entourage to take the money. So Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he told those guys he was with, he says, I'm go- I-, I need to go back. I need to go back. So he turned back. He went back to Eglon. He, he came to Eglon and he said, Oh king, I have a secret message for you. Secret message. Somebody say, secret message. He had a secret message. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet, and he sent them out of the room. So now we just have Ehud and Eglon. Close names. I pulled it up. All right. So Ehud and Eglon. He's there by himself. He's got the secret message. So, he leaned in, he leaned in to whisper in his ear, he said, come here. And then as he leaned in to Eglon to speak into his ear, he reached with his left hand. I'm not reading it because it's kind of gross, but he reached in, got that dagger off of his right leg. He pulled it out with his left hand, and he... Killed King Eglon. Our handicapped deliverer. Right? He reached in and he killed him. With a double-edged dagger that he made. After he killed him, he had escaped. He got out of there before the other people came back in. Passing the stone idols on his way to Sarah, when he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. Yeah, he's killed the king. He escapes the city of Moab. And he runs. And then he says, It's time. Let's rise up. Let's go get them. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said. Listen to who he's giving credit to. For the Lord has given you victory. The Lord has given you victory. You cried out to the Lord. He rose me up as a deliverer. And I'm here to tell you, let's go get them because the Lord has given us the victory today. Let's go. The Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him. He's still in front now. And the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. So when the Moabites find out that their king is dead, all of a sudden the Moab army, 10,000 of the strongest, most able-bodied warriors... Went after God's people because they had killed killed their king. What does it say? Just a band. I don't know how many he had. The Bible doesn't tell us how many he had, but I'm pretty sure it's less than 10,000. Or with Ehud. They attacked the Moabites, killed about 10,000 of their strongest, most able-bodied warriors. Not one. Everybody say not one. Not one of them escaped. So, Moab was conquered by Israel that day and there was peace. Everybody say peace. Peace. Rest. There was peace in the land. Does anybody remember how long that peace and rest lasted last week? Does anybody remember? 40 years. Now there's peace in the land. There's peace among God's people. Peace in the land for 80 years. 80 years of peace. Here's my question. Why did it take them 18 years of bondage before they decided to cry out to the Lord? that makes sense to you it just doesn't make sense to me i mean they turned away from god i mean was it shame was it guilt was it what why did it take them 18 years to turn to god they could have turned to god the first month the first day <laughs> that all of a sudden now they're under Eglon and the Amorites and the Amalekites and all them came, if they would have turned back to God, they wouldn't have been paying tribute to Eglon for 18 years. Right? Who's with me? Why did it take them 18 years? But as we look at our lives, Why did it take us so long to live in captivity and bondage before we turn to God? Does anybody have some friends or some people that you know that they're just in bondage, they're in spiritual bondage and captivity, and why, why won't they turn to God? You talk to them, you witness to them, and you say, turn to God, Right? We're ministers of reconciliation, calling people to turn to God is what the Bible says. And we do that, right? In our testimony and in our lives, we're we're reaching out to other people. But why do they hold on? Why do they hold on? I tell you, during my times of thinking that I can do it on my own, you know, I'm not going to stand up here and look like I'm holy with a like an angel halo over my head. Like I don't deal with the same problems that you deal with because I'm the preacher. But when I get in my own strength and my own ability and thinking that I can make it happen, and I step out from under God who can make it happen, right? To go my own way, why? Why does it take me so long to turn back to God? I know none of you ever experienced that. You're above that now, right? Everybody, everybody's above that, but me. I mean, I'm I'm the only one that deals with that. Look to the person beside you and tell them, "Run to God. Run to God." Because when we run to God and when we acknowledge him as king, when we acknowledge him as Lord, and when we know who he is, when we put our trust, see, I trust my king, that he is my El Shaddai, that he is my Yahweh Jireh, that he is my Yahweh Rock. I mean, I trust him. When I do that, I can experience it who He is in my life. The Bible even uses a term, I'll probably bring this one up next week. He is our strong tower and our refuge. He's our refuge. See, it's just all over the scripture. The Bible doesn't say umbrella. I just use the term umbrella because that's a visual that we can see and think about. But it's that same concept over and over and over. Jesus said when he looked at Jerusalem, he says, oh, how I want it to be like a mother hen and you be the chicks. Same picture. It's the same picture. That I could protect you, that I could care for you, that I could supply you, that I could lead you in the right places and protect you from the from the hawk that's coming or, or whatever. I want you, I wanted you to be under my wings. I want. But you wouldn't let me. That's what Jesus said, looking over Jerusalem. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's honor God as King. Let's live under his umbrella a blessing and provision. Just go ahead and throw in these victory and freedom and protection. Because that's who he is. That's what he does. That's what he does. Let's pray to God. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Help us to embrace it. Help us to take hold of it. Help us to be doers of your work. Not just hearing it today, but doing it. Help us to run to you. Help us to acknowledge you. Every moment of every day. You are King. And you are Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This online worship experience was brought to you by the friends and partners of Elation Church.